<clears throat> this next section is called Cognitive Training. This is the last part of the um, uh, Dhammanupasana uh, about the six sense spheres. According to the discourses, a penetrative understanding of the nature of cognition, sanya, is a prominent cause for realization. So in this whole section, um, uh, as I've been saying a few times, he uses the word cognition as a translation for sanya, and it's most uh, uh, commonly translated as perception. So over and over again you've got cognition, 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 cognizing, and so um, you might need to translate that because we tend to think of cognition as thinking and perception as perceiving, like seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So he persist he's decided to use cognition for the... A translation of sanya, so um, it's got that kind of flavor. It's uh, <coughs> you could uh, change the word cognition and cognizing for perceiving or perception as you go along, but I won't uh, change it. I mean, he's written it as he has done, and he has his own reasons for doing that. But um, it just so that uh, people are aware that when the uh, when it's using the word cognizing or cognition, it's not just about thinking, but it's translating the Pali term sanya. So, according to the discourses, a penetrative understanding of the nature of cognition, sanya, is a prominent cause for realization. Cognitions under the influence of sensuality or aversion lead to cognitive distortions and thereby cause the arising of unwholesome thoughts and intentions. So if you're an aversive type, you'll tend to find things, see things and hear things to get annoyed with. If you're a greed type, you'll see and perceive things that are attractive and, and um, compellingly uh, interesting and such like. Distorted or biased cognitions include significant misapprehensions of reality that affect the fundamental structure of ordinary experience, such as when one wrongly perceives permanence, satisfaction, substantiality and beauty in what is in fact the opposite. And those are called the, the vipalasas or the, um, the four distortions. So uh, seeing the impermanent as permanent, seeing the unsatisfactory as, as satisfying, the insubstantial as substantial, and the non-beautiful as beautiful. So those are the vipalasas. The presence of such unrealistic elements within cognition is due to the habitual projection of one's own mistaken notions onto cognized sense data, a process of which one is usually unaware. You say, well, no, it, it's not me thinking it's beautiful, it really is beautiful. It's not me, it's not my opinion that it's ugly, it really is ugly. That's a horrible sound. That's, a, that's an awful taste. And assuming that our particular pattern of perceptions is the, the one true measure of reality, um, so that's what he means by, you know, one is usually unaware that we don't realize that we're making judgments um, based on subjective perceptions. Like if you were a, a fly, a pile of dung would, it would, it would uh, kind of uh, be perceived as, oh, look, lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that's what flies eat. It's, that's what they do. Or a rotting, a rotting body. Oh, whoopee. A dead body. Great. You know, quick, tell everyone. It's a rotting body. Lunch, yeah, lunch, dinner is served. Uh, so, as a human being, a rotting body does not attract that kind of 
attention. But you know, who's who's correct? Is the fly correct or is the human correct? Is it? And then it's really disgusting. Well, if you're a fly, no, it's not. It's lunch. <laughs> so so uh, it's recognizing the subjectivity of of our perceptions. These habitual projections underlying the perceptual process are responsible for unrealistic expectations and thereby for frustration and conflict. And he quotes a, a little passage from uh, Eric Fromm, who uh, in his 1960 book called uh, Zen and Psychoanalysis, where Eric Fromm says, Man in the state of repressedness does not see what exists, but he puts his thought image into things and sees them in the light of his thought images and fantasies rather than in their reality. It is the thought image that creates his passions, his anxieties. And then he also quotes Johansson saying, uh, things are seen through the lenses of our desires, prejudices and resentments and are transformed accordingly. As a countermeasure to these unrealistic cognitive appraisals, the discourses recommend cultivating beneficial cognitions. Such beneficial cognitions direct awareness to the impermanence or unsatisfactoriness of all aspects of experience. So uh, this is what's called developing the Anicca Sanya or the Dukkha Sanya. Um, so uh, as people are probably familiar with um, the development of insight, the, the key um, say reflections are about the, or what are called the three characteristics of, of existence, so whether it's mental or, or, or physical, um, internal or external, you know, all things, are, uh, according to the Buddhist understanding, are in a state of change. They are anicca. They are unsatisfactory. They can't be permanently satisfied. Their experience of them can't be permanently and perpetually satisfying and pleasing. And anatta, they're not, uh, they're not self. They're, they're not who and what we are. They don't have an owner. They're not under personal control. That's the characteristic of all conditioned things, uh, mental or physical, internal or external. So, uh, the, developing the Anicca Sanya and the Dukkha Sanya in particular is uh, lined up with, oh, it, this, is, this is an impermanent thing. It's, it's seeing the quality of change or it's seeing the quality of unsatisfactoriness uh, and uh, insubstantiality. So that those are particular reflections that the, the Buddha encouraged. The Anicca Sanya and the Dukkha Sanya is what he's talking about here. Others are concerned with more specific issues such as the unattractive features of the body or of food. Regarding the nature of these cognitions, an important point to bear in mind is that to cognize something as beautiful or as impermanent does not refer to a process of reflection or consideration, but only to being aware of a particular feature of an object. In other words, to experience it from a particular point of view. In the case of ordinary cognitive appraisal, this point of view or act of selection is usually not at all conscious. Cognizing someone or something as beautiful often takes place as the combined outcome of past conditioning and one's present mental inclinations. These tend to determine which aspect of an object becomes prominent during cognition. Reflective thought only subsequently enters into the scene influenced by the kind of cognition that led to its arising.
So uh, saying how these are uh, somewhat automatic judgments that um, uh, that the mind is making and uh, appraising something as beautiful or, or, or unbeautiful, uh, attractive or or off-putting, and um, <coughs> the reflective thought comes in after that initial uh, reaction, and so uh, um, the in terms of, of contemplation, so th- this would also consider part of that is saying how you might think, okay, well. Um, I'm a food type, food is always interesting, but then to consider, well, wait a minute, if I'm full, then uh, food is less interesting than when I'm hungry. Or when I'm hungry and I come into the sala and the, the smell of food goes, oh, that's interesting. But then when I'm full and we're clearing up and you, you come into the room and go, oh, this place stinks of food. Open the windows. It's the same smell. But at one moment, you think, oh, Interesting, and then uh, you know, half an hour later, it's oh, that's disgusting. Can open some windows here, or if you are ill, you know, if you are something that you tend to relate to as your favorite food, or something that you you uh, generally like to eat. When you're ill, you have uh, nausea or upset stomach or something. Just the sight or the smell of of the food is uh, instantaneously off-putting. So that's a, a, a good opportunity to develop the anicca sanya. Oh, look, it's not the the, the, it's not in the food; it's in the mind that uh, that uh, the, the feeling of of goodness or uh, or value uh, is uh, is located. That if the body is sick or is not is nauseous, then that it, it, that um, same object or the same same perceptions become their opposite. They become you know off-putting or repellent. The crucial point from a meditative perspective is that cognitions are amenable to a process of training. The ability to train cognitions is related to the fact that cognitions are the outcome of mental habits. And again, he's, he's using cognitions, remember, to, as perceptions. Uh, so the way we perceive things uh, is the outcome of mental habits. By way of cognitive training, one can establish new and different habits and thereby gradually alter one's cognitions. The basic procedure for such cognitive training is related to the same habit-forming mechanism, namely, to become accustomed to and familiar with a certain way of viewing experience. By directing, uh, by directing awareness again and again to the true characteristics of conditioned existence, these will become more and more familiar, imprint themselves onto one's way of viewing experience, and thereby lead to the arising of similar ways of cognizing on future occasions. So, for example, um, if uh, you are, um, say, developing the Anicca Sanya, I, I had a, 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 a good experience of this many years ago in Thailand, um, and when I was a novice at Wat Pananachat, and um, there was a, a Thai monk who was staying with us, who was working on a... Uh, um, uh, one of the treadle sewing machines. There wasn't any electricity there, so you know sewing machines were all you know done by by foot pedals. And he was uh, trying to get the uh, the metal plate uh, off the um, the lower part of the sewing machine with a screwdriver, the, and the, the screw was was stuck. And so he was he was um, pressing the screwdriver into the screw and trying to to get it to, to loosen. And you know as one does, you know you, you, I was paying attention and watching him sort of working on this thing and. And getting involved in 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 the uh, the process of him trying to get this the the plate loosened, 
and then uh, and then suddenly the screwdriver broke and my mind went my mind thought damn and at the same moment he said anicca <laughs> and it was like instantaneous that like my mind said oh that's a, the screwdriver failed that's bad and it's wrong and it shouldn't do that and his mind immediately went to anicca it was it was screwdrivering and it's not screwdrivering anymore and uh, and so that was a, a powerful lesson because he he'd been uh, following this kind of practice for some time so uh, developing that anicca sanya that recognizing well i call this a screwdriver but it's a, you know it's in a state of change and oops it just changed you know uh, in a very dramatic way so that you're <clears throat> the more that you train the mind in that that uh, in a particular fashion the more it will go that way <clears throat> which is kind of a no-brainer but also um, something that we miss and it's the <coughs> the basis of cognitive therapy also um, and there's a little passage in the, the sutta number 19 in the middle length discourses uh, where the Buddha talks about the kind of mind training he used before his own enlightenment and how he divided his thoughts into two categories <clears throat> he said uh, when I consider this leads to my own affliction uh, say, uh, as I abided diligent, ardent and resolute a thought of sensual desire arose in me I understood thus this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me this leads to my own affliction to others affliction and to the affliction of both it obstructs wisdom causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana and so um, <clears throat> so then when he, uh, he saw that uh, he said uh, when, and I considered in that way this leads to others affliction it subsided in me when I considered this leads the, uh, to the, my own affliction, it, it subsided. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided. So <clears throat> then when he saw a thought of, similarly a thought of cruelty or a thought of ill will, then, and he saw that it was harmful, then recognizing that it sub, uh, subsided and passed away. And then he makes the comment, because whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of his mind. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation. Uh, <clears throat> to cultivate the thought of sensual desire, and then his mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, he has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty. To cultivate the thought of cruelty, and then his mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. So that's a, a simple phrase to bear in mind and just to, as an encouragement. Whatever, uh, uh, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. As I said, it's a bit of a no-brainer, but it's very, very significant. So, and also nowadays with um, all the kind of machinery and um, wizardry they have in uh, science uh, laboratories, they actually can measure the, the, the physical difference that it makes that when you use certain parts of the brain in certain ways that it does make physical changes to the the um, the, neuro, uh, the neurology of the brain so if you look at the brain scans of London taxi drivers the zone of their brain which covers of a, a three-dimensional space is much more developed than the average person uh, and so on <clears throat> so that um, that th this uh, cognitive training that he's talking about here is about 
um, using this sort of uh, anicca sanya, the, re- the recollections of impermanence, the recollections of uh, unsatisfactoriness and not self and so forth, as a way of, of you know, retraining, kind of creating new ruts, uh, better, better ruts in the mind so that you are following what is skillful and letting go of what is unskillful. As he said, uh, by directing awareness again and again to the true characteristics of conditioned existence, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, these will become more and more familiar, imprint themselves onto one's way of viewing experience, and thereby lead to the arising of similar ways of cognizing on future occasions. The method through which cognition is trained can be conveniently exemplified with a set of terms occurring in the Girimananda Sutta, which is in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, uh, Book of the Tens, Sutta number 60, is the Girimananda Sutta. Um, where reflection, patisanchikati, and contemplation, anupasana, are mentioned alongside cognition, sanya. Although this is not spelled out in the discourse, this passage lists these, those two activities that are related to training cognition. A preliminary degree of wise reflection as a basis for the sustained practice of contemplation, anupasana, and skillfully combined, these two can gradually transform the way the world is cognized. Incidentally, um, uh, I, I did notice this morning when it was the, the, um, uh, giving the, uh, the, doing the ceremony for the five precepts and the three refuges, when I picked up the fan, the ceremonial fan, the little brass uh, nub in, uh, on, the, on the bottom of it fell off. And my first thought was Anicca, rather than, someone needs to fix this fan. This fan is broken. So. The last 38 years have not been wasted. <laughs> to give a practical example, if on the basis of an intellectual appreciation of impermanence, one regularly contemplates the arising and passing away of phenomena, the result will be the arising of anicca-sanya, of cognitions, perceptions, apprehending phenomena from the viewpoint of impermanence. With continued practice, awareness of impermanence will become increasingly spontaneous and have an increasing influence on one's daily experiences, like with the fan, uh, outside of actual contemplation. In this way, sustained contemplation can lead to a gradual change in the operational mechanics of cognition and in one's outlook on the world. Now that sounds a little bit technical, um, but uh, uh, over and over again, almost every day, people come um, and visit Amravati uh, because their parents have died, their children have died. Yesterday, uh, a mother and daughter came, um, the 50-year-old daughter had gone to the hospital to have an angiogram and had died just going for a test, and uh, died in the hospital, uh, unexpectedly. And uh, today, uh, a woman came, her father died two days ago in Sri Lanka, 50, uh, uh, 55 years old, which doesn't sound very old to me nowadays, now that I'm 59. So. Um, and, uh, and so, this um, is exactly this kind of reflection, when you're thinking about the, the death of a loved one, it's like, oh, how how awful! That's un- that's unexpected. That oh, that's oh, she was, you know, he was only fifty-five. She was only fifty. Um, but if you develop the anicca sanya and this uh, per- the perception of um, 
the impermanence and not self, that what, what it's telling you over and over is you are not in control. Uh, as Ajahn Chah would say, um, that, <clears throat> you know, the uh, life is not, uh, does not have any manners. It's very impolite. You know, aging and sickness, they, uh, they are not, they are not um, polite. They don't even knock. They just kind of arrive and kick the door in. <laughs> they, they don't ask permission. They don't, uh, they don't uh, sort of send you a message in advance. They just show up and, and kick the door down. So, you know, you have no right to uh, assume that you're going to live to 55 or 85, you know, that, and that uh, over and over again there's this sense of, oh, oh you know, this is um, shocking or startling, but uh, it's good that people come to the, the monastery and it's an opportunity to reflect on the, on the teachings because over and over again you have these kind of reflections where uh, to the, the family yesterday, Indian family who's, the woman whose daughter had, had died uh, getting the angiogram. And uh, <clears throat> I said, you know, the, the, the Buddha said our uh, life expectancy is from the, our reasonable life expectancy is from the beginning to the end of an outbreath or the beginning to the end of an in-breath or the time it takes to, to chew and swallow one mouthful of food, which if you time it is about three or four seconds, maybe five. It's not very long. <laughs> That's how long we can reasonably expect to live. And, uh, you know, when I say those words, and then, oh yeah, right, right, right. But, isn't it interesting how, oh no, oh, he didn't die, wow, he was only 70. What? <laughs> the, the conditioning is so strong that we're still surprised when things fall apart, things don't work, we have uh, illnesses, losses, uh, things uh, things disappear. Uh, our precious possessions, you know, some some watch we've had for twenty years, you look for it in your pocket at the airport and it's not there. Oh, oh I had that watch for twenty years. Okay, that's a memory. <laughs> it's now it's gone. Yeah. So that uh, you are um, uh, say preparing your mind, and this is part of the, the usefulness of this, so that then. And not just when people die, but as uh, the aging process happens, or we have, you know, uh, say, diminishing faculties, you can't move so quickly, or you're, you have uh, <coughs> uh, more um, difficulties hearing, people seem to keep mumbling, no one speaks clearly anymore. <laughs> that uh, you are recognizing, oh, well, I used to be able to hear, and now everyone's mumbling. Okay, that's changed. Or I didn't have to wear glasses, now I have to, if I want to see who's sitting in the back row in the dimness, is that tanny? Might be, I'm not sure. Kind of the right sort of shapish head, but might be, might not be. I'm not, and maybe that's Chili next to her, kind of, maybe, not sure. Yeah, I haven't got my glasses on, so I can't tell. <clears throat> That wasn't the case 20 years ago, now it is. So when we are wise, then, then we don't take those kind of changes as a loss or somehow being a, a diminution. When our children die, when our eyes go, our ears go, our, our thinking faculties go, if we've been wise, then we, we, don't, uh, we don't feel diminished or, or uh, that things are unfair or that anything's gone wrong. It's like, okay, well... Uh, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Oh, yes, my mind. <laughs> Not just my possessions, my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my family, my friends. Yes, it's all included. It's all part of the package.
And so then it changes the way in which those things are held. It, it makes a radical difference. And the more we take that to heart, then the more when those changes come, you know, we, we, we feel them, we know them, but we are not, we're not experiencing any kind of loss or diminution because it's that the, the Dhamma of the way things are is being demonstrated. It's, oh yeah, my loved one just died. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's because we're all part of the laws, uh, subject to the laws of nature. It's sad, but nothing's gone wrong. And so that then, the uh, you, the more that kind of perception is developed, then the more we're prepared, and that and that uh, as things go, our faculties or our reputation or our friends or our family or whatever it might be, then the more one has a, a genuine refuge that there's a, a real uh, reliable refuge, and uh, <coughs> that um, uh, that is something that is. So it can be depended on and is something that can be used as a resource at all times. So these are, even though it can sound a little bit technical in the way that it's speaking, it's, it's very uh, significant and uh, pertinent for the way that we relate to our bodies, our families, our faculties, and, and also the, the things that we take for granted. You know, the, the government's going to be around, or the health is, our health is going to be around, or the National Health Service is going to be around, or... Our capacity to think and to remember is going to be around. No, <laughs> that uh, nothing is, is should be taken for granted, and that uh, those reflections on on lifespan, you know, the, that uh, they the, uh, they're really useful if you apply them. That the only reasonable amount of time you can plan for is the next three or four seconds. The rest is extra. According to the discourses, such cognitive training can lead to a stage at which one is able at will to cognize phenomena as agreeable, apatikula, or as disagreeable, patikula. The culmination of training one's cognitions in this way is reached when one completely transcends such evaluations and becomes firmly established in perceptual equanimity. The discourses go so far as to consider such mastery over one's cognitions to be superior even to supernatural powers like walking on water or flying through the air. So that's quoting from the again the very last sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, this is 152. Um, not the bit about flying in the air. That's from that's from the Diga Nikaya. But this um. This is called the development of the faculties, Indriya Bhavana Sutta. Um, so uh, let's see. And how Ananda is a noble one is one a noble one with developed faculties. Here Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an odor with the nose, tastes a flavor with the tongue touches a tangible with the body, or cognizes a mind object with the mind. There arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. If he should wish, may I abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. So when you come across a rotting corpse, you think you can reflect, 
If I was a fly, I'd think, hmm. So that's uh, seeing the, uh, the unrepulsive in the repulsive. <coughs> or that's simply organic matter. Why do I freak out? He abides perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. If he should wish, may I abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive, he abides perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. So that um, uh, <clears throat> if um, uh, you see something that you would find attractive, say in, in, in terms of, of food, um, like a, an apple, and you think, uh, oh, I, I think that's attractive. If I was a vulture, yeah, I would see that and I go, it's not even slightly rotten. And it's, and it's fruit. Yuck. <laughs> Disgusting. So seeing the, um, uh, the repulsive in the unrepulsive. Uh, and if you should wish, may I abide perceiving the repulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive. So all the different combinations. If he should wish, may I, avoiding both the repulsive and the unrepulsive, abide in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. He abides in equanimity towards that, mindful and fully aware. That is how one is a noble one with developed faculties. So that's Sutta 152 in the Majima, if you want to have a look at that. And then the other passage about the um, uh, psychic powers and such, like he says there's the, um, the Aryan... Uh, psychic powers and the the non-Aryan psychic powers. So the non-Aryan psychic powers are things like reading people's minds, flying through the air, walking on water, and such like. But the 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 Aryan um, psychic powers uh, are um, or what he describes, uh, and that's in the the Diga Sutta. Where are we? Uh, number twenty-eight in the in the Diga Nikaya. Uh, <clears throat> he says the ability to see the the uh, the non-repulsive in the repulsive, like to see go and, and visit a, uh, an autopsy and see a human body being uh, opened up and being able to see. Well, that's rather a nice shaped bone, or that. It's kind of interesting the way that the fluids you know trickle that way, and that's quite charming color. That a sickly green uh, tone there. <laughs> That, so seeing the, uh, the unrepulsive in the repulsive and seeing the repulsive in the unrepulsive, uh, the Buddha refers to that as that's a, a, a more important, as an Arya, as a noble psychic power, as opposed to walking on water or flying through the air or reading people's minds, which is the mundane, a kind of a, an unremarkable or um, an, uh, say a, an ignoble kind of psychic power. So he emphasizes that uh, ability to say, to be a master of one's perceptions as being a superior ability. The basis for developing such intriguing kinds of mastery is satipatthana contemplation. The presence of sati directly counteracts automatic and unconscious ways of reacting that are so typical of habits. By directing sati to the early stages of the perceptual process, one can train cognition and thereby reshape habitual patterns. Of central importance in this context is the receptive quality of mindfulness, which gives full attention to the cognized data. Of equal significance is sati's detached quality, 
which avoids immediate reactions. In this way, receptive and detached sati, applied to the early stages of the perceptual process, can make habitual reactions conscious and enable, uh, sorry, and enable an assessment of the extent to which one is reacting automatically and without conscious deliberation. This also reveals the selective and filtering mechanisms of perception, highlighting the extent to which subjective experience mirrors one's hitherto unconscious assumptions. In this manner, through Satipatthana contemplation, it becomes possible to access and redress a central cause of the arising of unwholesome cognitions, and thereby for the acti activation of influxes, asava, underlying tendencies, anusaya, and fetters, sangyojana, by de-automatizing or deconditioning habits and subconscious evaluations. So the more, basically the more sati there is, then the, the more you are able to see quickly how the mind creates those, those judgments and then counteracting them. It's, it's interesting, speaking about autopsies, um, how um, going to see a, an autopsy at the police hospital in, in, in Bangkok, when you see your know, bodies being uh, um, uh, laid out on the slab and having the skin peeled off and the mus you know, muscles being opened up, when you, uh, you, you go there and you, you watch that for, uh, and smell that for a couple of hours, then you walk out onto the street. It's very interesting how you look at arms and legs in very different ways, or particularly the number of people who've, who've um, ended up on the slabs who are on motorbike accidents or in the fallen off scaffolding and such like, because the, the police um, uh, um, pathology lab is to do with uh, accidents and murders and, uh, and so it's not from illnesses from hospitals, but those kind of things. So then, uh, and when you, you come out of the, uh, of the um, autopsy lab and you see people riding on motorbikes and, uh, with, their, you know, with, with their shorts or t-shirts or, or, or climbing up scaffolding, uh, then you know, you, you, uh, you're seeing the bodies in very different ways. Like, those bones are on the inside at the moment, but they very easily come through the skin and come out. Or, yeah, well, those, uh, the arm and the elbow, they're all kind of arranged according to the, the normal pattern, but uh, that's that, um, the way that guy's hanging off the scaffolding, that, that could be very, uh, very impermanent. So that then uh, it's interesting to see how that, the, the, f the fragile and conditioned nature of the arms and legs and bodies and heads and such like, that um, when you're going in, it looks one way, and when you come out a couple of hours later, it looks very different because you, you just... Uh, had that opportunity to see those arms and legs and bones and and, uh, and muscles and organs all sort of rearranged and and uh, say put into different patterns, uh, either through someone's accident or when the body's being uh, dissected and and the different parts being examined. So a practical application of this skill is the subject of the final section of my exploration of the contemplation of the sense spheres. So before we go on to that, which is about the instruction to Bahia, uh, so are there any questions or clarifications? Okay, very good. So Bahia. Bahia of the bark garment, Bahia Daruchiriya, was a non-Buddhist ascetic who once approached the Buddha for instructions while the latter was collecting alms food. 
Still out on the roads of the city, the Buddha gave him a short instruction concerned with cognitive training, with the result that Bahia immediately gained full awakening. The Buddha's cryptic instruction was, well, before I go there, so Bahia, he was a wanderer, a yogi, and he, he was living in this place um, near where Bombay is, on the west coast of India, and then he, um, he was uh, like a spiritual teacher and uh, was under the impression he was an arahant, and then some devata appeared um, and said, Bahia, unfortunately, you're not an arahant and you're not even on the way to becoming an arahant. So Bahia, to his credit, didn't just take umbrage and get annoyed and say, well, who do you think you are? But instead, said, well, are there any arahants in the world? And then the devas said, well, actually, in Savati, there's this, um, uh, the Buddha Gautama. And so uh, there and then, Bahia started walking, and it's about a thousand miles from, from um, Mumbai, where he was, uh, to, to Savati, and just set off and, and made the journey. And so he's walked a thousand miles before this encounter, where uh, he's come across the Buddha on his arms round in the streets of, uh, of Savati, I believe. It might have been Rajagaha. Um, and uh, so that his, there's a certain urgency <laughs> and then when he uh, he stops the Buddha and asks, asks for instruction the Buddha says well Bahia we are on our arms round this isn't the convenient time to talk and then uh, then Bahia says well, you know life is uncertain venerable sir you, you know, neither you or I know, no, no one knows when they're going to die so please teach me the Dhamma he does that and the Buddha says it again and they go back and forth three times and after the Bahia makes the request the third time, then the Buddha says, after the Tathagata has been pressed three times, then he has to respond. So then he gives him this teaching. So that's the, the, the preamble. So what the Buddha said was, when in the seen will be only what is seen, in the heard only what is heard, in the sensed only what is sensed, in the known only what is known, you will not be by that. When you are not by that, you will not be therein. When you are not therein, you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This is the end of Dukkha. Uh, predictably, people have been debating on the exact meaning of that passage, as this is uh, Venerable Analio's translation. Um, and there are various different renderings. Uh, this is from the Udana, um, the the collection of the Buddha's inspired utterances and um, and so the uh, uh, there's a, a translation by John Ireland uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has a translation uh, and then I, I brought along my own rendering from another another book so it's a bit cryptic um, and uh, uh, before I go on to Venerable Analio's analysis I'll read you my version of it because it's the um, the in the wording of it, you have these two particular terms, tena and tata, and um, which he, he goes to goes into in a footnote. But exactly what they mean or what they're supposed to imply is, is a little bit hard to figure out. So I pondered this a lot, and the, so the version that that I came up with, this is in Small Boat, Great Mountain, uh, goes like this. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sense, like, like tasted and, and uh, smelt, there is only, uh, uh, and physical sensation. In the sense, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. 
Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here on the subject side, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there on the object side. So if you um, just know there's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, so uh, you'll recognize there's no I, there's no me, there's no subject who is the experiencer. And seeing there's no experiencer, no subject, then you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. There's no solid, permanent, external object either. As you see that there is no thing here, you will see that uh, there is, the, sorry, as you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this subject, nor in the world of that object, nor any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. So that's in the, the last sutra in the first section of the Udana, so Udana 1.10. It's also, um, there's a, a bit of a theory that, because it, it relates to um, uh, some passages in the Brihad Aranyika Upanishad, that uh, it's it's uh, almost like the Buddha is taking the, the passage from the Upanishad and doing a bit of a, a commentary on it because it's in the Upanishad it says something like um, <clears throat> the when the, the uh, when there is seeing and hearing and uh, uh, and and knowing the self uh, then there is nothing else then then the world is known there is nothing else to do uh, so I haven't got the, the words of it here, but it's almost a, a comparable language of it, but it's, but it's saying that when there, when there is clear seeing and, and knowing and, and smelling and tasting and touching and clear cognition, then the, the, the true self is really known. And the Buddha is saying, using a similar kind of format, uh, not saying you know, the true self is known, but rather you can't find yourself. <laughs> In this or that or anywhere else, that the that these are anatta. So he, it seems like he was possibly taking a familiar teaching about um, uh, the the that uh, about cognition, about knowing and and perceiving, and then tweaking it so that which he often did in his teachings, so taking a familiar spiritual teaching and then giving it a a a, a different angle of approach and. Um, so maybe he was uh, uh, aware that Bahia was familiar with that uh, particular Upanishadic teaching, or that that was something that was you know, a common knowledge. But it, there is a, a relationship, uh, apparently a relationship there. So I'll read uh, Venerable Analia's commentary on this. This instruction directs bare awareness to whatever is seen, heard, sensed, or cognized. Maintaining bare awareness in this way prevents the mind evaluating and proliferating the raw data of sense perception. This corresponds to a, an interception of the first stages in the sequence of the perceptual process through mindful attention. Here, bare awareness simply registers whatever arises at a sense door without giving rise to biased forms of cognition and to unwholesome thoughts and associations. So, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the 
in the smelt, tasted, touched, there's only that. In terms of sense restraint, the stage of making a sign, an imita, is thereby brought into conscious awareness. Establishing bare awareness at this stage of the perceptual process prevents the latent tendencies, anusaya, influxes, asava, and fetters from arising. The activities of seeing, hearing, sensing, and knowing, mentioned in the Bahia instruction, occur also in the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. That's the very first uh, discourse in the Majima, Sutta number one. This discourse contrasts the Arahant's direct comprehension of phenomena with the ordinary way of perception through misconceiving the cognized data in various ways. The Chabi Sodana Sutta, which is um, the six kinds of purity, that's Sutta number 112, I think, yeah, uh, in the Majima. Um, that Sutta relates the elaborations absent from what is seen, heard, sensed, and known by an Arahant to freedom from attraction and rejection. Other passages discuss the same set of activities with an additional emphasis on avoiding any form of identification. This injunction is particularly pertinent since according to the Alagudupama Sutta, the, the simile of the snake, the activities of seeing, hearing, sensing and knowing can lead to wrongly developing a sense of self. Passages in the Upanishads indeed take these activities as evidence for the perceiving activity of a self. And then his, uh, his note on this um, he, he quotes from the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, states that the self should be seen, heard of, thought about, and meditated upon, since by the seeing, hearing, sensing, and cognizing of the self, everything is known. So that, uh, um, again, that's the, uh, it seems like the Buddha was, was probably taking that passage and making a commentary on it. The Brihadaranyaka Upanishad then declares that once the self is seen, heard, sensed, and cognized, everything is known. And there's a, a similar passage, um, or related passage, that in the uh, the lesser discourse on the destruction of craving, Chula Tanha Sankhaya Sutta, which is Sutta number 37, I believe. Yeah, <clears throat> when um, uh, the Buddha is talking to Saka, to Indra, the, the, the king of the gods, um, and Saka has asked him, uh, how in brief is a bhikkhu liberated by the destruction of craving, one who has reached the ultimate end, so on and so forth. And then what the Buddha says is, here, ruler of the gods, a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, and the Pali for that is Sabe Dhamma Nalang Abhinivesaya. So nothing is worth clinging to. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, he fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, whatever he feels, whether painful or pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant, he abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment. Contemplating thus, he does not cling to anything in the world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. 
When he is not agitated, he personally attains Nibbāna. So that, um, that same kind of languaging of you know, you knowing everything, <laughs> what the, the Buddha says, when there is no clinging, when you know nothing should be clung to, then you know everything. Rather than when you know the Self, capital, capital S, when you know the Atman, then you know everything. So it's, it's a similarly sort of taking a familiar phrase and saying, uh, it's uh, like taking a, uh, like an opposite uh, point of view or an opposite take on it, so that it's going against that um, concept of the the permanent or absolute uh, identity of of Atman. And the uh, that simile of the snake, that um, uh, the. Um, Activities of seeing, hearing, sensing, and knowing can lead to wrongly developing a sense of self. That's the, uh, also relating to the, the parable of the raft. So that taking the, the, the teaching and carrying it around. Um, uh, and uh, in that same sutta, talking about the um, uh, identification with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, um, and uh, developing a, a sense of I and me and mine out of those sense experiences. According to the Bahia instruction, by maintaining bare sati at all sense doors, one will not be by that, quote-unquote. That's uh, tena. It's by that, T-E-N-A, which suggests not being carried away by the conditioned sequence of the perceptual process, thereby not modifying experience through subjective biases and distorted cognitions. So by that is, in the Pali word is tena, in the sense of thereby. Um, <coughs> not being carried away, one is not, quote, therein, unquote, which is tata, T-A-T-T-H-A, tata. And not being carried away, one is not therein, by way of subjective participation and identification. Such absence of being therein draws attention to a key aspect of the instruction to Bahia, the realization of anatta as the absence of, per- of a perceiving self. So uh, uh, when I was contemplating that you know, year, year, uh, years ago when I did this book, uh, trying to sort of make it more... Uh, sort of tangible or, or meaningful, it seemed to be that that uh, the first part uh, um, that he translates as by that, um, that uh, uh, yes, like you, there is no, uh, there is no thing, uh, as I translate it, there is no thing here, and then um, therein there is no thing there. So I, I recognize that my, my rendering is a rendering rather than a sort of particularly accurate translation. And so uh, uh, it it might be incorrect, <laughs> I fully acknowledge, but it's these are the kind of things that's useful to pick up and explore. Like taking a passage like that and go therein, thereby, here, you know, by that. What, what what does this mean? What's this pointing to? So taking a particular term, picking it up. You know, what what is this talking about in terms of my own experience? How, working with my mind and seeing what what is this. The, uh, possibly referring to, so in a sense, you're you're, you're taking the the um, 
the words of the sutta as like a map, and then you're 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 looking at your own experience, and you say, okay, now how does the map refer to this? But you take that you what your experience is as the um, the the basic measure, because the map might be wrong, or the, the map might have some gaps in it. Um, and so it's. Uh, I feel it's more important to to take your own experience and to to look at how things are are known from your side, and then and then in a way work out your own wording or work out your own sort of interpretation, and then say, okay, well maybe that's a good way of phrasing it. Does that does that function that way? Let, let's let's phrase it like that in my own mind, or use my own words, and also you know use your own language. And, there's people of a you know dozen, couple of dozen different nationalities here. Take your own language and say, oh well, actually a good word for it in Chinese or Portuguese or Lithuanian or, China or Thai or whatever, it might be this. So then you know use your own interpretation, work it in, and then and then this helps the the, the teaching come alive rather than saying, oh well, you know the, the the translator in the book it says this, and then it's. Well, what the heck does that mean? Or that's a, it just gives you a blank spot, and so it's more important to to pick it up, apply it, and see see how it works. And and then and the way I like to operate is to so have like a a kind of working hypothesis. Okay, well let's let's put it into those words or into that form, and see if see if it operates, see if it flies, and then and then also being prepared to be wrong or to change it or to to um, to uh, re rejig it if uh, if need be. Because sometimes the the what's there in the in the Pali, it's it's got um, uh, you know the, there was a misprint you know four and a half centuries ago, <laughs> and that the, the 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 another word got substituted. And you and it, and uh, it's it's interesting reading Bhikkhu Bodhi because he's he's studied a lot of Chinese now, and also Venerable Analio in his later works has done a lot of study of the Chinese agamas, and that. There's passages that that in the Pali they now make sense because you can see that oh it it wasn't tata it was tata all oh, right because it's there in the Chinese and that and there was a misprint in the Pali and so that they've been trying to to figure out what it was meaning but then through these other manuscripts other recensions then it it, it comes alive so Bhikkhu Bodhi's been doing a lot of that and Venerable Analia similarly. I think from his his contact with Bhikkhu Bodhi is, and, and the richness of getting a it's like a different version of the same suttas. Then, oh, that's what it means. Ah, finally, it makes sense. So you know, because you get this um, what's known in the colloquially as the the blessed are the cheesemakers effect. So those of you who are familiar with the life of Brian, there's a small group of people standing at the back of the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus. So they can't quite hear very clearly. And Jesus had just said, "Blessed are the peacemakers," and then <clears throat> one of the people in the crowd says, "Blessed, blessed are the cheesemakers." <laughs> and then instantaneously, the person next to him says, "Well, when he says cheesemakers, he really means everybody working in the dairy industry." <laughs> you know, you've already got a commentary explaining the, the mistaken perception, and then it becomes the, the, the way it is. You know, like the. The, um, there's this uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Christian convent that we used to have uh, retreats in in the States, um, Angela Center, and there are the Ursuline uh, uh, nuns. Um, and St. Ursula 
was a, 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 an, an English princess who made a pilgrimage to, to Germany. And according to the legends, uh, she, she left, she wanted, got permission um, finally from her, her dad, the king, to go to, um, to, to pilgrimage in Europe. Actually, no, she was going to Rome, and then she got killed uh, in Germany. And it was said she was traveling with 11,000 virgins. <laughs> Now, in, in the dark ages, you know, like sort of eight or, uh, uh, in the years of 800 or 900, 11,000 young women traveling together would have been very precarious, extremely impractical. But according to the sort of Catholic legends, you know, no, St. Ursula and the 11,000 virgins, and they all got killed. <laughs> but then when you, the, you go back to the original scripture, you realize there was a, it was actually a, um, uh, it was a, uh, um, a uh, uh, an M rather than than um, like an M is a shorthand for a thousand, so undekim means eleven, and then the copyist put an extra M in, so undekim with two M's instead of one, right? so rather than, so undekim M meaning a thousand mille, so that eleven thousand okay it must have been eleven thousand. So from, you know, St. Ursula with her 11 friends turns into St. Ursula with 11,000 friends. And then that became the, the sort of, the legend of the, you know, the, the 11, St. Ursula with 11,000 virgins all killed by these German bandits, you know, <laughs> you know on the way to Rome. And just like, uh, but it, it got, you know, some copyist put in an extra M by mistake and then the, the other generations said, well, there's two M's, you don't spell Deccan with two M's, but well, it must mean, it must mean a thousand. Wow, well, that was a big crowd. Well, what a disaster, 11,000, they all killed at once by a group, it must have been a heck of a big group of bandits as well. <laughs> but then it becomes the truth. So that's a bit of a, 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 an additional commentary, but I think in terms of understanding these scriptures and making them alive, then it's helpful to start with your own experience and then use the, the teaching to help interpret and work with your own experience rather than starting with the scripture and trying to make your experience fit the scripture. Okay, so let's get to the last page of this chapter here. Neither being by that nor therein, so either... Uh, does um, Tena and Tata also constitutes a comparatively advanced stage of Satipatthana practice when the meditator has become able to continuously maintain bare awareness at all sense doors, thereby not being by that, by remaining free from clinging to anything in the world, nor being therein, quote-unquote, by con continuing to abide independently, quote-unquote, as stipulated in the Satipatthana's refrain. According to the final part of the Bahia instruction, by maintaining awareness in the above manner, one will not be established here or there or in between. And so I took my um, in the world of this or in the world of that as a sort of, uh, I, I took that as a um, that the kind of the final line, you won't be able to find yourself here or there or in between. I thought that, that was... Um, yeah, referring to that sense of you can't find uh, um, solidity in the world of the subject or in the world of the object, here or there or in between. And so um, speaking of that, he says, 
A way of understanding here and there is to take them as representing the subject senses and the respected objects, uh, which I did, with in-between standing for the conditioned arising of consciousness. According to a discourse from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is uh, in the book number 61 in the Book of the Sixes, it is the seamstress, quote-unquote, craving, tanha, which stitches consciousness to the senses and their objects. Applying this imagery to the Bahia instruction, in the absence of craving, these three conditions for perceptual contact do not get sufficiently tied together, so to speak, for further proliferations to occur. So the craving will be what stitches this and that and, and, and in between to, uh, together and, and um, causes the, the bonds between them. Such absence of unnecessary proliferation is characteristic of the cognitions of arahants, Nipapancha, who are no longer influenced by subjective biases and who cognize phenomena without self-reference. Free from craving and proliferations, they are not identified with either here, the senses, or there, objects, or in between, consciousness, resulting in freedom from any type of becoming, whether it be here or there or in between. And so, as I, I had that, that translation, um, I've put it into more colloquial English. You can't find yourself, you can't find yourself in the world of this or in the world of that or anywhere between the two. So that, uh, <clears throat> and that sense of the, the location of you know, where where I, where the feeling of I is or where reality is, um, that uh, is a letting go. And I also like to use a terminology of subjectless objectless awareness so that there's a, a, a quality of of uh, unbiased knowing and a, an awakened awareness but it's not a, a knowing here that's aware of a that over there but as it's reflected in this this teaching there's just seeing hearing smelling tasting touching rather than dividing that into a there's a a, a knower here and a known over there but there's a letting go of that that uh, subject and object duality, and that it's also the case that uh, Bahia, um, he was dead right in his, um, no pun intended, in terms of saying your know, life is uncertain because he uh, he became an arahant as soon as he heard the teaching. So he was given the the Buddha gave awards occasionally, the, so uh, uh, Bahia was given the award of the one who understood the teaching most uh, quickly. The, 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 because he, uh, he heard this teaching and became an arahant straight away just in a short discourse but uh, he was a wanderer he was wearing this bark his, his robes were made out of bark and he didn't have an arms bowl apparently he just sort of collected his food in his hands so that he asked the Buddha if he could become a bhikkhu and the Buddha said have you got robes in a bowl and he said no I haven't so he said well go and find robes in a bowl and then I can give you the upasampada so then Bahia goes, goes off to try and find a robe and a bowl, and he got knocked down by a runaway cow and died in the street. So he was right, life is uncertain. <laughs> so that uh, he, did, uh, he died before he became an official uh, disciple of the Buddha, but uh, the Buddha praised him as the one who understood the teaching with greatest speed. So he's one of those uh, interesting characters in, in the suttas, and... Um, 
that uh, the the story is is there in the uh, in the Udana if you want to read it uh, more. It's, uh, it's the last sutta in the first section of the Udana. But any other questions? Yes, HK. Like uh, I, it's it's not a custom. It's more about like uh, my feelings. Like, uh, like you, okay, you, what you are talking today, like uh, it seems like very normal, but to me it sounds really extreme. Like a, because it questions everything, it shakes everything. Like I, my heart is really pounding right now, just because it it. It sounds really normal, just just ordinary, what you were reading from that book. But to me, like uh, it feels just so extreme. I feel like I'm, like whole, if I question my perception, it it shakes everything. Yeah, it's earth shaking. Yes, it's, it's so it's so radical. It's so extreme. That's so. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, that uh, so that that teaching, if you consider that was enough to bring about uh, Bahia becoming an arahant. I mean, there was a bit of preparation. He walked a thousand miles, and he was he was really ready. Uh, but also that um, uh, that kind of simplicity and directness. Um, if we follow through on the implications of that, that is, it is it's uh, it's world shattering. It shatters our, you know, my world. But that's again, that's not a sen- if we if we relate if we relate to that skillfully, it's not a loss. As the Buddha said, you can't get to the end of suffering unless you get to the end of the world. And that doesn't mean like the planet collapsing, but it's it's through that uh, the quality of non uh, non clinging, you know, non grasping, and that the. Um, Seeing how you know, we've uh, the mind is identified so much with perceptions and the body and our personality and our life story and taken that to be you know, absolutely real, and then uh, as he said, you, know, you, you it's uh, what is the it's um, the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. It's in this this. Uh, Two meter long body with its thoughts and perceptions. This this is where the world uh, arises. It's within within this life. So when that that's um, uh, seen, uh, um, and the ending of the world, it's rather like the ending of the world as something other. But when uh, as the it's like the 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 otherness of the world and and things comes to an end. So it's not a, a sense of, of loss, but rather a sense of, a, of an illusion being seen. You recognize how the, how the conjurer did the trick, like, oh, that's how they did it. Oh my goodness, look at that. But like if you see in a, a movie where you have a, a kind of dramatic, picture, dramatic scene in a film, and then it's really sort of compelling and colorful and, and mobile, and then you see the photographs of what was actually happening with the green screen, and uh, it was all just 
computer graphics and and uh, and like uh, there was only there was only actually two actors and all the rest was just the uh, computer graphics uh, you know conjured up oh look it wasn't in New York at all and there weren't any cars flying through the air oh look at that it was all just a trick huh and so there's there, there's that sense of um, how the trick was done is be is seen so that then uh, the it's kind of um, challenging to our you know the, the part of us that was invested in the illusion <laughs> but it's liberating to to our own heart to our, to the jitta so um that uh, i wouldn't be too too worried about that sense of of um uh challenge because what's being challenged is is just the uh is ignorance is the illusory way of seeing me and the world and uh, when that illusion is seen through then there's a sort of reconfiguring that, that naturally goes on okay i think that's enough for today